Flannery O'Connor died in 1964 at the age of 39. She left behind her a rather slim body of work, two novels, a collection of letters, a dozen or so essays, and most of all, 32 short stories, 10 or 12 of which have entered the American canon. The rare students who make it through high school without reading O'Connor's stories will almost certainly run into a good man it's hard to find or good country people in their freshman English classes. O'Connor's stylistic economy and her dark humor will ensure her popularity for decades to come, but many readers are supremely disturbed by her stories when they first encounter them. They're violent, and to use one of O'Connor's favorite words, they're grotesque. Their characters are generally aggressively unattractive and unpleasant, and they often come to terrible ends. To spend much time with O'Connor's nonfiction, however, is to learn that she had an intensely religious purpose for all that ugliness, and that's scandalous for both the religious and the non-religious. Hundreds of critics have written on O'Connor over the years, discussing everything from her Catholicism to her being a Southerner, taking every conceivable position toward her from evangelical to deconstructionist to psychoanalytic. And yet, many of these critics skim over O'Connor's relationship to disability. She herself suffered terribly from the autoimmune disease lupus, which killed her father when she was 15, and which made her own life a ticking time bomb. And what's more, a great many of her characters have some sort of physical or intellectual disability. My name is Michael Farmer. I'll be your host today on Christian Humanist Profiles. And my guest today for our first episode is Dr. Timothy Bazelon, the author of Flannery O'Connor, Writing a Theology of Disabled Humanity, which is the title attempts to sort out how O'Connor's own disability relates to her Christianity. Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. Yeah, thank, that, that was a very nice introduction there. Thank you. Our project here, both on this show and on the, the main, sh you know, the show it's spin off from, the Christian Humanist Podcast, is deliberately interdisciplinary. And so one of the things that interests me about your book on O'Connor is that you aren't, as far as I can tell, primarily a literary scholar. You're a theologian. Can you talk for a few minutes about what made you interested in O'Connor and why you decided to write this book about her? Um, well, I, when I started college, I was one of those rare students that knew what they wanted to do and stuck with it the entire time. <laughs> I did a double major in Bible and in English, and I just became more and more fascinated with the connections between the two, uh, partially because I grew up in a very conservative home, um, in the South. And I was taught that culture and Christianity were very separate items and should be kept separate. Um, and so in college, I began to see the connections and began to be very uh, enthralled with that. And I stayed with that through my PhD, and I have a PhD in theology and culture. And in trying to decide after I came out of college which direction I wanted to go, um, I could either choose to do a literary track and sort of uh, make sorties into theology, so to speak, um, or I could do theology, and that's really more where I wanted to go. So I stuck with the theology and then kind of did uh, literary studies on the side a little bit more. You decided um, you didn't really have to choose. Yeah, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be interdisciplinary. Um, I was not planning on doing disability studies as well. That, that's one of those things you learn you know, partway through your, your dissertation. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then you're tackling a whole new field of study <laughs> all of a sudden. So... <clears throat> drew drew out the uh, dissertation a little longer than expected, but um, I don't, I don't know that? anyone whose dissertation wasn't drawn out longer than expected. Yeah. <laughs> what, what what got you interested in disability? Yeah, well, in disability, um, well, you probably read the prologue to the the book where I talk a little bit about my father. Um, initially, though, that was not in the front of my mind. I hadn't studied disability studies. I was just. Uh, I was trying to, I had been drawn to Flannery O'Connor, and there was just something about her writing that um, it, it just spoke a deep truth to me that I, I wasn't getting other places. And I was trying to figure out, and I knew it somehow centered around her being able to find God in those places that seem grotesque to us and have God show up in those spots. And I, I couldn't get a handle on how to express that. And my mentor at where I went to school at Fuller suggested that I read some disability studies stuff. And I thought that that seems kind of ridiculous. Um, but I started to look into it. And as soon as I started reading it, it just fell into place for me and made sense. Um, it, it really became the key for me to understand O'Connor and where she was coming from and what she was trying to do. So that's how I got interested in 
uh, disability studies. Um, of course, then I started recognizing a deeper interest in my life. When I was 11 years old, my father had a severe brain injury. He was working on a heavy, he was a heavy equipment mechanic and he was working on a, the front end of a tractor, one of those large buckets, and it fell on his head. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And he, he was in the hospital for almost a year and he had severe head injury problems. Um, you know, he lost an eye. He, uh, he had complete amnesia, so he didn't have any idea who we were. Or he also had what's called retrograde amnesia. So he would forget things from week to week. So we would be introduced to him as his children, and then we'd come back the next week, and he, he wouldn't have any idea who we were again. Well, that um, sounds terrible. So I, I lived with that as a teenager. Um, my mom basically becoming a single mother of sorts, where she was now caring for my brother and myself and my father. So you were kind of primed to look at disability in O'Connor's fiction. I was. It, yeah, but it wasn't. It, it's interesting because it wasn't my entry point. I didn't start there and then go to O'Connor. I was into O'Connor and trying to understand what she was doing. Uh, and, and then I started reading disability studies. Isn't it funny how, how autobiographical literary criticism and other sorts of academic work ends up being – even even though you try to be objective about it, your your own life kind of creeps into it. Well, yeah, and I'm, that's why we're drawn into it. That's why it connects with us so deeply. Well, it's, it seems that in some ways O'Connor's Getting Lupus was the pivotal event of her uh, artistic and personal life. But you, I think, very wisely caution against certain ways of reading her illness. How How do you think people have misunderstood her attitude toward her lupus over the years? Um, that's, that's a very complicated question because people have understood it so many different ways. Uh, sure. but for the most part, I think people have ignored it and that is a problem because I see in that the way culture at large ignores disability at large. Uh, we're uncomfortable with it. It reminds us of our own death, of our own limitations. And so we don't really like to talk about it. It's difficult for us to approach someone who's in a wheelchair, for example, and, and it's to talk with them like they're normal people, um, to become friends with people like that. Um, so I, for me, on a, on a larger scale, I think that disability studies has most, I mean, I'm sorry, O'Connor studies has primarily just ignored O'Connor's disability. I don't think necessarily on purpose, but that's how it has happened. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true. There are relatively few pieces written about uh, her relationship to disability. And, and among her Christian critics, I can't think of anybody other than you who deals with it at length. There are some that have begun to. I, I discovered a few dissertations along the way that I read uh, of people who were dealing with it. Uh, but you're right. There's not. There's not much there. There's not many um, that have dealt with it. So, so what effect did Getting Lupus have on O'Connor in terms of her artistic production? Well, in her words, um, she says that it, it had an enormous effect on her. That her it, well, it re it forced her to return home. At the time, she was living in Connecticut with the Fitzgeralds, who were literary critics, nationally known kind of literary critics and she was living with them and, and, uh, you know, trying to be an artist, uh, oh, free from where she grew up in the confines of living in the South in a rural area. Uh, she had spent some time in New York. She had spent time, um, obviously at the writer's workshop in Iowa. Uh, and she, she thought that was essential for her to be able to, to you know, be open to the world and experience the world to be able to write about it. Um, and the lupus forced her to go back home, to live, move in with her mother, um, to be in rural Milledgeville, Georgia, and on her farm at Andalusia. And she, um, 
I think I lost lost the question there for a second. The the effect lupus had on her. Uh, it affects her because it it causes her to move back home and become a great regional writer uh, of America, one of the greatest that we've had. Where she really concentrates on the southern her southernness and who southern people are, and uh, one way that she described that was that the South had not completely, because of the Civil War, the South knew how to lose or how to be a loser. Um, It understood that everything wasn't about uh, winning and perfection and making everything absolutely better. And so she found in characters that were thoroughly Southern some sense of that. And I think she worked with that a lot. And in, in my work, I dovetail that with her understand with her being disabled and with a disability perspective and understanding our limitations and understanding that we're all vulnerable people. There's there's certainly a difference in her the fiction that I mean if you get the collected stories there's five or six stories that are published before her diagnosis and and the difference between those and the post lupus stories are are so vast and noticeable mm-hmm. that it, it's hard for me not to say, well, her lupus must have, must have done this in some way. It must have, it must have made her into the writer she is. Am I romanticizing her too much? Uh, possibly. I think those first five stories come from when she was a, a master's level student. And so she's writing for a class, for a teacher somewhat. Uh, so I think that probably affects her and she's just needing to mature but uh, of course there's no doubt the more she matures that her her work becomes better and better and and for me at least her disability has a lot a lot to do with that a great deal to do with that well let's talk about one of her favorite words uh at least in the non in the nonfiction, which is that word grotesque Mm-hmm. And I believe that began as a criticism of her fiction, and then she reclaimed the word, or claimed it. I don't know if, if, if there was any reclamation. Anyway, what does she mean when she talks about the grotesque, and, and how do you relate that to her treatment of disability? I'm not sure if I can define precisely how she used the word grotesque. Um, she uses it, and I'm also, I, I've understood it as, that there was already a, a, a kind of the, the growth, like she has the grotesque in Southern fiction. I thought that she, at that time, she was using a word that was already in use. Yeah, no, I, I don't think she coins it, but I, but I think okay. she kind of claims it for her own. I, I see what you're saying. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it gets to the heart of her people in her town that wanted her to write the next gone with the wind because they understood her to be a good, a a good writer, but they didn't understand why she would write what she writes about. (laughs) I I think the word grotesque allows her, uh, she kind of grabs onto it as essential to what she's, what she's doing. Um, Perhaps the best story to get at that is in an introduction to what's the name of that? A memoir of Marianne, uh, which is, I believe it's the last essay in mystery and manners. If people have that book, she writes about these nuns who have asked her to write the story of Marianne. Marianne was a small child who came to their uh, home in Atlanta where they took care of people with terminal illnesses and she had she came with a tumor on her face, and she had multiple surgeries to remove it. She lost the use of one of her eyes. Uh, she was very misshapen. Um, in fact, when when O'Connor O'Connor says they send her a letter that has a picture of Marianne, and she picks up the picture and looks at it and puts it down rather quickly because she was bothered by the picture. Um, she tells eventually the the nuns come to. Andalusia to visit with O'Connor and asking her to write it, write the book. She refuses to write the book because she didn't know Marianne, but she says she'll write an introduction to the book. But while they're talking with the nuns, 
they, um, one of them asked, why do you write about the grotesque of all things? Why is that what you do? And O'Connor writes in that, in uh, the introduction to a memoir of Marianne that she wasn't sure how to answer. And she was kind of on the hook. And someone else suddenly gave them the, the one answer that would make sense to both of them, which was that the work of the nuns was also that of the grotesque. And for me, that really encapsulates a good understanding of the grotesque. O'Connor goes on to explain in that, that this helped her realize a new understanding of the grotesque as well. And she talks about, um, actually, let me, let me look that up real quick because it's a really good description that is, I, I think is very, very helpful. Let me read you what she says about that. This is towards the end of the introduction here. Sure. By the way, later in one of her letters near the end of her life, she wrote to someone saying that if anybody who wanted to read and understand her work would have to read everything that she had written, especially the Marianne piece. Which is funny because it's, it's probably her least read piece yeah. of all. I mean – I hadn't read it in years when I came across uh, the chapter in your book devoted to it. And I thought, wow, this completely breaks open her fiction in a way that I'd, I'd never even thought about. Um, well, I'm not – I'm sorry. I'm not finding the passage right at hand. Perhaps I can get it later and read it back to us at that point, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. I'll keep looking for it. but. One of, one, of the th one of the points you make about that essay is that it means that it's not just the bad that's grotesque, which is how I've always taken it um, in, in O'Connor, that, that she, she creates these grotesque characters to show the distance of human beings from God, right? Uh, but, but the point you make about the introduction to Memoir of Marianne is that O'Connor's saying the face of the good is as grotesque as the face of the bad. Can you go into what that means? Yeah, let me let me start with that. By I did find this passage here, so let me read to you what she says here in the um, introduction to a memoir of Marianne. Um, after an afternoon with them, meaning the nuns that had come to visit, I decided that they had had about everything and flinched before nothing. Even though one of them asked me during the course of the visit why I wrote about such grotesque characters, why the grotesque of all things was my vocation, they had in the meantime inspected some of my writing. I was struggling to get off the hook she had me on when another of our guests applied the one answer that would make it immediately plain to all of them. It's your vo vocation, too, he said to her. This opened up for me also a new perspective on the grotesque. Most of us have learned to be dispassionate about evil, to look it in the face and find as often as not our own grinning reflections with which we do not argue. But good is another matter. Few have stared at that long enough to accept the fact that its face, too, is grotesque, that in us the good is something under construction. The modes of evil usually receive worthy expression. The modes of good have to be satisfied with a cliché or a smoothing down that will soften their real look. When you look into the face of good, we are liable to see a face like Mary Ann's, full of promise. Um, what I do with that in the book in my book, um, in my understanding of O'Connor, is to say that um, most of the time we have seen O'Connor's stories as a reflection of evil and showing us the bad that's inside of ourselves. And there is truth to that. That is a large part of what she is attempting to do is to show us that we all have original sin. But I think she also is looking further into the face of the good, um, looking at it long enough uh, to see that the good is something under construction. And she says the good is grotesque as well. So, I mean, on a large theological level, that's the cross. The cross is grotesque. Uh, and yet it is the good for us. And I think she begins later in her career to pull that out more and more and more and do more with it. Uh, the height of which I think is in her second novel, The Violent Bear It Away, where Bishop 
who is developmentally disabled child who throughout the course of the book is referred to as idiot over and over and over again. And yet he is the embodiment of love that his, his father, who is a supreme rationalist, can't get past and, and, and makes him want to fall to his knees in an act of idiot praise is one of the lines, I believe. Let's talk more about that book, because because the most eye-opening part of your book, for me, was your explication of The Violet Buried Away, because I've always found that to be the weakest of her mature fiction. Um, talk more about the relationship there between Raber and Bishop, um, and, and maybe if you can, tie it into some of the other events in that very, very strange novel. <laughs> <laughs> I've always found Wiseblood to I've, I've not enjoyed it as well, and I've always I've loved uh, the Violent Barrett Away. So, um, <clears throat> well, the relationship is at, at one point Raber, who is a psychologist and just as I said, a, a supreme rationalist. He's he, I think O'Connor is simply embodying modernism in him. This idea that we can help ourselves, we can we can do it ourselves. We don't need anything else, um, it, which is pitted against Mason, who is um, a, a prophet out in the woods, you know, seeking God and doing his own thing, and completely anti-rational, just about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and he's he's a. Uh, he he gets angry every time that Raber is around or that he <laughs> he's close to Raber because he's so upset that Raber is so rationalistic. Um, at one point, Raber he has this son who is developmentally disabled, and he he at one point says maybe in a hundred years people will have learned to uh, kill kill these people when they're born. Now, Which is pretty chilling now, isn't it? It it is. It's it's chilling in that our society is doing that in ways with prenatal testing and some other things. And and O'Connor foresaw that, I believe. She saw that that the way we were headed, we were we would be doing that. Um, now, Raber isn't being cruel when he says that. He wants to keep this child from having to suffer. But he is presuming that Bishop is full of suffering because Bishop can't rationalize and take care of himself and that sort of thing. And so he sees Bishop as suffering himself, but also becoming a drain on society and making society suffer. So it would be easier if he just didn't exist. Easier for Bishop, easier for everybody in Raber's understanding. And yet O'Connor again and again draws this, um, this terror, she calls it a terrifying love. And she has all these different wonderful phrases for it that Bishop, I mean, that Raber just can't get over that. He can't, he can't get past. And, and ultimately that's where she shows God is through this idiot child that is completely unrational. In fact, uh, at one place, at one place, Mason, who is the pro the prop, the backwoods prophet guy, says that God God granted Bishop idiocy in order to protect him from Raber's rationality. <laughs> and and that, that seems to be one of the big uh, through lines in your book that that a, a theology of disability is a theology of weakness, and that's what O'Connor adopts yeah um yeah I'm, I'm i'm beginning to believe in that more and more um i don't think she she didn't have the words of disability studies she didn't have the phraseology and all of that but i think she would have liked disability studies a lot in in creating a, a theology of weakness um especially I mean, one of the biggest places that I can reference back again is to that Marianne letter where she sh says she has that new perspective on on the grotesque being good. 
you you contrast throughout the book um, the the theology of weakness that O'Connor promotes with the dominant view of what we may as well call modernity, right? Mm-hmm. How does modernity see weakness? Let me talk about that from a perspective of disability studies. Um, I do a little overlapping with disability studies and, and broaden it out to modernity in general, because that's what O'Connor was dealing with. So I'm using the language of disability studies to, to um, and crossing it over with the language that O'Connor was using concerning modernity. So with, within disability studies, one of the primary purposes of disability studies is to sort of uh, push back against a me- what they call a medical model of disability. And a medical mo- model of disability is simply that medicine can and should fix disability. If we have the power and ability, we should change it. Um, and so within that presumption is an idea of a perfect human body that we should all be attaining to try to get to. And so medicine is meant to help us get there. And so you have plastic surgeons on one end that is part of medicine that is trying to attain that perfect body. Um, Of course, that isn't to say that all medicine is bad. A lot of medicine has been very good for disabled people, extending people's lives, um, helping them work, uh, uh, you know, be able to have prosthetic limbs and all of that type of stuff. And, And there's wonderful things about it, too. But when in our cultural imagination, we begin to think of the perfect body and we judge people according to what this presumed perfect body is, anyone falling back from that is uh, that, that can't, let me put that slightly differently, for a disabled person who is visibly disabled, it, it is an, a, it's a very easy, you can see that they're not that perfect body, whereas a lot of other people can kind of put on faces and pretend that they feel perfect and act perfect, even if they've got sciatica or, you know, uh, stomach problems or whatever it may be. Um, so disability studies is attempting to step back against this medical model that presumes this perfect body. And I cross that language over with the language that O'Connor is using and kind of the medical model comes out of the enlightenment understanding that we can perfect ourselves. And O'Connor uses that over and over again, this enlightenment vision that we by our own powers can perfect ourselves. And that's ultimately what she's trying to knock down and say, no, we can't. We we, We are sinful. There's no way that we can create our own perfection. And in fact, the drive to create your own perfection ends up being even more imperfect. Yes. And so you see all these characters in her fiction who who most try to create their own perfection. Um, for example, in uh, what's the name of that, that book? Um, I mean, I'm sorry, that story. Um, is it The Lame Shall Enter First? The Lame Shall Enter First, yeah. Yeah, in, so for example, in The Lame Shall Enter First, where uh, Rufus comes into the story, who is a abandoned child that Shepard wants to try to shepherd and take into his home, um, all the while he ignores his own son, whose mother has recently died. Um, and his son has all the advantages of modern convenience, of being taken care of, of being healthy. And so his father assumes that his son is absolutely fine because from the outside, he appears to be fine. He has everything. And so his father, you know, tries to get onto him and, and, and gets upset with him for eating weird stuff and, and things like that when he has all this wonderful things that he should be doing. And, he, and the father, Shepherd focuses all of his attention on this delinquent child, Rufus, who has a clubbed foot and he's trying to fix this clubbed foot and he takes him to the doctor and he takes him to get this new shoe that'll, that'll make his feet even so that he doesn't have a, a, a limp when he's walking 
because he thinks that if he cannot have a limp when he's walking, then other kids won't treat him poorly. And then he won't react in a bad way and begin stealing stuff and, and be a delinquent child like he has been. But because, because his, his spiritual disability is it were is completely reducible to his physical disability for Exactly. Shepherd. Exactly. Um, well, for Shepard, who again is a um, the penultimate kind of modern man, like Raber is in the Violent Barrett Away. Um, he doesn't see any the spiritual crisis. He just thinks that it's all a cause and effect. It's that scientific sort of understanding of cause and effect. And if I can, there has to be a cause for why he's acting so poorly. If I fix the cause, it'll be it'll be fine. And what he doesn't realize the whole time is that his son is in the in the shadows behind all of this, just dying inside, and ultimately ends up committing suicide at the end of the story. Which is which is all down to Shepard. I mean, it's it's his his decisions made that happen. Although I guess I should I should resist making that too much of a stimulus response as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, and when for first time readers of O'Connor, you you get to the end of the story and you're just, ouch! I mean, how can she do this? And she's been critiqued a lot for not caring about her characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having no emotional ties to them. <laughs> and yet she's so good at making us have emotional ties to them. Um, but when you, when you see what she's really trying to do with that and how she's trying to wake us up and that her famous line that she's for the, for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures and for the almost deaf, you have to shout. That's, that's what she's doing to us. We're so, in uh, another place she says, um, in modern culture, you breathe in nihilism. It's in, it's just it's just in the air you breathe. You can't get away from it. And so we are so affected by that that she feels like she has to have a have how many poor innocent children die in her stories? <laughs> yeah, and just just brutally too. Not yeah, yeah not not at all romanticized or or no. noble deaths. Just completely unsentimental. Yeah, brutal deaths. And there's something. There's something about that innocence that she's dealing with. There's there, uh, and I'm not sure if I can quite put it into words right now, <laughs> but there's something about it. Well, I talk a lot in my book about her understanding of sentimentality. Yeah, let's and, talk about that. And how how uh, we as a society uh, we want to sentimentalize the innocent, uh, the disabled. Um, so she, I deal a good bit with a, a story that she tells in a letter where she goes to a department store and this, she's in an elevator and she's on crutches at this time. And this woman grabs her and, and, and says to her, um, well, you, you know what they say. And she's what the, the, uh, lame shall enter first is Am I remembering that? Quite? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. <laughs> the, the lame. Uh, anyway, this, this this older lady who has a great deal of sentimentality for O'Connor and feels just complete pity for her because she's on crutches. And she, she almost tears up in concern for her. And O'Connor um, presses the button and gets off <laughs> before her intended uh, where she's supposed to get off. Uh, she gets off a couple of floors early just to get away from this woman. Um, and a another key part of that is that this woman kind of whispers very loudly in her ear <laughs> saying this. And that, that again, speaks to our, our cultural perception of disability. Someone is on crutches, so they must also be developmentally yeah. disabled. Or, or, yeah, or we don't know what else is wrong with them. Can they, you know... Do, if, if their leg doesn't work, does their tongue work? Can they talk? Can they hear? You know, can they really see me? <laughs> um, you're not sure. Uh, so instead of this woman in true concern in what O'Connor would say would be a, a kind of a suffering with understanding, she sentimentalizes and basically gives her kind of the view that Christianity has given a lot of people with disability which is, it'll be better by and by. Um, or God has a, a special plan or something wonderful to bring out of this. Um, 
And O'Connor just, she sees that as a great lie because it feeds into that modern, again, that modern perception or that modern understanding, that medical model of what disability is, that it can be used as a stepping stone to something better, to a perfection. And that's not what O'Connor wants. That's not what O'Connor is understanding. She talks about a, a suffering with creation as part of God's bigger plan. And so you may never, I mean, imagine for her, her father dying when she's 15 of lupus, the same thing she dies of. So that's a good thing to keep in mind when you think about her being disabled and having lupus. As soon as she got the lupus, she, she knew what the end result was going to be because she watched <laughs> her father die of it. Um, but try telling O'Connor or think about the many pastor's offices where people have gotten counseling um, and someone said, or someone would say to O'Connor, well, God's going to bring something wonderful out of this. And, and so I can imagine O'Connor's response, or let, let me make this personal for myself. I heard those words when my dad was injured and hurt um, and came back to our home a year later, a very, very different person, like a child. Uh, and yet I still, you know, I was supposed to treat him like a father. But people said to me, well, you just don't know what God's going to bring out of this and how, you know, it, it's for a greater good. And, and my thought process is, okay, if this, do we believe in a God who is powerful, all powerful? Couldn't God bring about this some, you know, whatever God wants to do some other way? Why does God need to hurt me in order for this to happen? Why does God need to, um, create such suffering and pain in order to bring about something good. Just make it good happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they weren't thinking about they, you know, they're, they're made, people are made, as you said at the very beginning, people are made uncomfortable by disability. And so they, yeah. they feel like they have to say something. Yeah. And, um, but I think that in, in Christianity, we've not developed a very good theology of suffering. Well, that's true. At least, especially not on a lay level. People don't understand how to deal with suffering or to understand suffering. And O'Connor talks about it as a, a suffering with all of creation that is, that is kind of under this weight uh, that God is in the process of redeeming and such. But when we, when we suffer, and I bring up in the book a, kind of a – it's kind of a silly example, but I think it shows the extent to which this she believed this. Um, she's writing to a friend who is complaining about being lonely and people not understanding her. And O'Connor writes her and says that this is an example of suffering with all of creation and suffering with Christ. Um, that Christ came and had to suffer with humanity in order for it to be redeemed. And so that doesn't make sense. And we, we want to explain it. We want to systematize it. And we want to say, well, the cross has to happen in order for this to happen. And this equals out. But the reality of it is it's a mystery. And that's what O'Connor is pushing us into. Don't try to explain away the cross. Don't try to give it reasonability. Don't try to give disability reasonability. Don't try to um, just fix it all. It's a mystery. And the key to that mystery and understanding it and living into it is a matter of acceptance you, and accepting mystery. You think of that passage in the Brothers Karamazov where Ivan is just listing off all these terrible things that happen to children. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he goes into the story of the Grand Inquisitor, and when his saintly brother Alyosha gets up, he all, he doesn't argue with him. He just kisses him, which is what Christ does to the uh, Grand Inquisitor at the end of the parable. Yeah. And, and, and somehow this is the answer to all our suffering, is Christ smiling, standing up, kissing us, and leaving the table. Yeah, why, why don't you explain that to us, Michael? <laughs> 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 Who's being interviewed here? <laughs> no, but... 
I mean, that's the that's the point. You can't explain it, and that's why O'Connor's work and why what you're just talking about is so powerful, mm-hmm. and why literature can be so powerful is because it can push us into that mystery and not give us the explanation. And, and, and it, it's not sentimentality because it doesn't it doesn't seek to alleviate the pain, right? You have that wonderful quote, and I actually I, I just realized as I was looking through that it's actually from Memoir of Marianne that that when uh, let me see if I can find it here when tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness its logical outcome is terror it ends in forced labor camps in the fumes of the gas chamber so sentimentality somehow ends uh, ends in Auschwitz yeah yeah well uh, that's that's Raber. He he's sentimental towards Bishop, towards his his uh, developmentally disabled son, um, and he he doesn't want his son to have to suffer, or he wants, or maybe he wants society to be better. He has this grand vision of a perfected society that he's trying to go towards, um, and so he becomes sentimental and and pitying of those who suffer, uh, in a way that. It, it doesn't seek to suffer with. So imagine God pre the incarnation being piteous of humanity and sentimental towards humanity rather than being willing to suffer with. I didn't I, I hadn't thought about this before this conversation, but it seems that sentimentality is just another way of avoiding actually confronting people with disabilities. And in so doing, confronting disability itself. Yes, and a lot of other things as well. Uh, I think we we get sentimental towards death, um, and, and towards a lot of suffering in the world. Uh, we get sentimental and piteous towards those pictures of people in Africa that are starving, or what, or whatever the the the, the cause may be, and and we try to alleviate that and be sentimental. Uh, alleviate that by, you know, giving something or advice or something like that. Uh, like this woman in the elevator at Davison's is, you know, she's trying to give this good advice and, you know, cheer up this poor soul who's having such a rough day on crutches. Um, but, you know, the, the end of that story in the elevator is O'Connor, in the letter, O'Connor imagines um, those, the lame entering first in heaven, meaning that because they have their crutches, they'll be able to force themselves to the front of the line <laughs> to get in. Right. So she uses the crutches as a, a tool, which, which is an interesting concept. Cause when we think of heaven, we think of that perfect body that we've all imagined. Mm-hmm. We don't imagine people having crutches. We don't imagine people being blind or deaf, for example, is a very good example. There's a there's a debate that goes on in a in deaf community where <clears throat> two parents who are deaf and have a child who is is deaf but has the possibility of having cochlear implants and being able to hear. From the outside perspective, the world says, well, yeah, of course, they need to be able to hear. They need to be able to experience hearing birds in the wilderness and all this stuff. But within the deaf community, that that is to say to them that your culture that you've created around sign language isn't justifiable. It's not worthy. It's not, it's, it's not useful. It's no good. Um, another way of thinking about that is there's a great book by Nancy Islin uh, named the, Dis- the Disabled God, which kind of messes with our categories, right? Quite a bit. How could yeah. God be disabled? But when you read Paul talking about Jesus um, taking on emptying himself and taking on human flesh, or when you think about the resurrection after the resurrection and Jesus appearing to the disciples in his resurrected forever eternal body with holes with the stigmata holes in his hands and in his side and his feet. Those are categories of disability. And so God is disabled. And so that, that throws back on us 
what do we mean when we say disabled? What are we trying to get at? What are we trying to say when we talk about disability? It seems that the, um, the, I don't know, most influential cultural presentation of disability is probably like Tiny Tim, the, the noble cripple. I mean, who's just, yeah. pardon my use of that horrible word, but I mean, that, 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 that seems, seems accurate to me. And, and one thing that O'Connor does that I think is just outrageous, if you really stop to think about it, is she dares to make her characters with disabilities unpleasant, awful mm. people. Like you think of Joy yeah. Olga. Mm-hmm. Who, who should be Tiny Tim, right? If, if we're following the cultural presentation of people with disabilities, yeah. he should be, she should be sentimental and pitiable. And, and instead, she's just the most unpleasant person you could ever hope to meet. And also, well, rather clearly, an XP for O'Connor herself. But... <laughs> right. Um, well, I, I, that, uh, for me, that's the difference between someone who is, uh, well, the, part of the difference is, someone who is able-bodied writing about a disability and sentimentalizing it and someone who is actually disabled writing about disability and being honest about her own imperfections and her own, uh, there's a lot about Holga that is very familiar when you, <laughs> yeah. when you know more about O'Connor. Um, o- o- Holga is what O'Connor would have become without the church. Yeah. Let's put it that way. I think that's, that's, I think that's what she's attempting to do. Um, but yeah, that, there's that, that sentimentalizing of disability that God, again, God is trying to reveal something special and you're the only one strong enough to handle it. And so God has given, so you're stronger really than the rest of us. And, you're and so that's, brave. Just, yeah, you're so brave. You're so wonderful. Um, and it's a way of us feeling better about them having a disability because we're uncomfortable with them having a disability. But if we can, um, if we can balance that with feeling good about them being wonderful inside or something along those lines, it makes us feel better, but it's untruthful. Mm -hmm. Disabled people are just as messed up inside as we are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and roughly the same proportions, right? And and the, the flip, the other side, of, other way to say that is, we are all just as disabled. I mean, disability is really such a terrible term in a lot of ways because um, it, it's not. It's such a fluid category. It's not like being white or being male. It's it's just completely fluid. We can be in and out of it at any time, which is part of the the scariness of it and what makes us so uncomfortable about it. We're all, we're all headed that direction. Yeah. We're all headed that way. We know we're going to go there eventually. And we don't like to imagine that. (laughs) Let's, let's talk about the way the church has, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but let's go into a little more detail about how the church treats people with disabilities and what it can do better. Uh, You said earlier that there's a failure on the church's part, especially on the, the laity to deal with disability appropriately. Mm. What, what do you think that would look like? Dealing with it appropriately, I should say. Pardon my uh, vague pronoun. Mm. Well, first, on, on the simplest level, it's a matter of access. Uh, you know, the ADA, Americans with Disability Act, I think that was 1990, if I remember correctly, um, it, it forced businesses and cities and uh, everything else to provide parking spaces and uh, curb access and elevators. Um, a lot of churches, though, were exempted from that to some degree. Uh, historical buildings were exempted from that, and so a lot of churches thereby were exempted. Uh, new construction has to, no matter what it is, but um, providing access to make sure people can get to where they need to be uh, is, is one way of just being open. But on a much more fundamental level, um, there's, a, there's a very profound book by uh, Hans Reinders called Receiving the Gift of Friendship. And he's talking about profound disability. The subtitle is Profound Disability, Theological Anthropology and Ethics. And his argument in there is that no matter how much access you provide, 
what people with disabilities, particularly people with um, developmental disabilities, what they need is friendship. And no matter how much we provide access, if you're still not willing to talk to those people, <laughs> you know, so what if they got in the door? Um, if, if they can't create human connections with other people, what's the point? And so until we have a new imagination in the church of, for one, identifying ourselves, I think, as disabled and not categorizing ourselves in some closer relation to that perfect body and therefore more healthy or more, you know, we are, we have continued to be Job's friends sitting around him and pointing at him and saying that um, you must have sinned for this to be, for this to have happened to you. Uh, as much as we think we don't still do that, I think we do. We really do on a very fundamental level. Um, <clears throat> so a cultural imagination that at once imagines ourselves and understands ourselves as disabled and what that would look like, I believe, would be an acceptance of vulnerability. And I talk a lot in the book about vulnerability as, and I really get that from Rainder's book, um, to redefine what it means to be human according to relationship rather than according to function. When uh, the Enlightenment defines humanity, I mean, I think therefore I am Descartes, right? Uh, it, it, you're defined according to rationality uh, and, and accomplishment and what uh, efficiency, all these kind of things that our whole society is set upon. Um, when you define humanity according to relationality, though, vulnerability has a huge place. Um, tell, tell, way, tell me what you mean by vulnerability. Being open with our weakness, not trying to hide our weaknesses. So on, on any level, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it may be, uh, being more open with one another. I think that we, even in Christianity, in the church, people have a great difficulty being open with one another about their weaknesses. Uh, we're taught that the Christian life is supposed to bring happiness and joy and you know, people go to a church and they put on this front of everything being perfect and wonderful. Um, and, and we don't provide enough spaces within church um, and enough theology within church to allow for being vulnerable with one another. So I, I come from a evangelical place that has not appreciated the Catholic understanding of uh, confession. You know, so evangelicals embracing more confession <laughs> yeah. would be a, a, a very simple way of uh, imagining that. I mean, it's easy. It's easy for us to forget how Catholic O'Connor really is. Yeah. But especially mm -hmm. given how much her theology of weakness is built on this exception, acceptance of divine mystery. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe you're right. Maybe Protestants need to act more Catholic in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, yeah. Which is, I'm there's, sure, there's, not there's, to say that the Catholic Church has treated people with disabilities perfectly. Right, yeah, I'm sure O'Connor would have a good bit to say about that. <laughs> I mentioned so. <laughs> I wonder what the access was, at, at, like, at the church that she went to. <laughs> yeah, well, in Milledgeville in the 60s, probably not great. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't even want to think about what people at her church must have said to her. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I was saying before, one part of imagining it is to understand of, of, um, how the church could do better with disability, is to imagine ourselves as more vulnerable and to live into that and accept that. I, I, for me, that's the most important thing. Along with that, and as we do that, I believe that we can find the, in a very succinct way to put that, find the beauty of the cross. Not to sentimentalize the beauty of the cross, but that, that's an image that perhaps we're familiar with, that you can find beauty 
in the cross. It's a great paradox of the it, a symbol of suffering, but it's also the symbol of our faith, and it, it it's it's a very can be a very beautiful thing to us. So I believe that the more that we push into our vulnerability and understand it, the more we're able we will be able to find the beauty of people sitting in wheelchairs, or you know what they can offer to the church where we we aren't thinking of the church as someone who needs to make room for and protect and do something for those who are disabled, but where we are joining in to what their ministries are, the giving, cause that's, you know, when we become friends with them, we're saying that you have something to offer as well. Um, I'm not just here to take care of you and sentimentally give you and make you better and help you out. Um, I'm wanting to receive something from you as well. And so on a bigger theological level, the church has something that it needs to learn from the disabled. The church has something that uh, the, the disabled need to be able to be called into their own ministries and affect where the church is going and have their voice heard. And as, as we, in our cultural imagination or, or you know, our Christian cultural imagination, begin to embrace and accept vulnerability and see the beauty of it, we can then hear those voices for what they are and see the beauty of what they're saying. And all of this involves turning our back to some extent on enlightenment paradigms. That's a strong way to put it, but um, yeah, I think I agree. (laughs) (laughs) O'Connor was certainly anti-modernist. Yes, uh, she was very disturbed. <laughs> it's, it's hard to think anybody other than Walker Percy who is more anti-modernist than O'Connor. Yeah. Well, yep. I wanted to end today by talking about the new program you're part of at Dallas Theological Seminary, the Media Arts and Worship Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's involved there, and do you, you plan on using O'Connor in your curriculum? Well, I am brand new here, and the media arts and worship is a brand new department. It just started in on July 1st, and I was the first hire. Um, there's a man named Reg Grant who has been running a program here in media arts and worship, or it's you know it's had a, quite a few different names over the years, but he's been doing it for about 20 years here, and the program has continued to grow and grow until they finally said. Um, you know what, you should probably have your own department. So <clears throat> right now we are continuing with the program that has been, um, and we're beginning now to be able to take some of the reins ourselves and redevelop some of the curriculum uh, since we're not underneath another department anymore. Um, so we are imagining the possibilities at this point of, of what it could be, which is a wonderful, great place to be. Um, I'm quite enjoying myself <laughs> in the new position here. Um, once we get things more established, I, I'll start teaching courses that appeal to me, which will be, I'll probably do some theology of disability courses. Um, I'll probably do some, you know, theology and modern literature type courses and and deal with Flannery O'Connor quite a bit and bring her into it. Um, any, any, uh, anything else on that? Uh, just is, is that a good enough explanation? Absolutely. Whatever, whatever you want to tell us. I don't, I don't know much about the program. It just sounded interesting to me. So I thought I'd, uh, ask you, well, thank you, uh, Tim Baslin yeah. for coming on the show and talking about your book. Uh, if listeners are interested in buying it, we will put a link to it on the show notes over at christianhumanist.org. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. It was, uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.